We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. When it's time for a new credit card, the best ones do way more than just buy stuff. And that's why U.S. Bank offers credit cards that make every day more rewarding. Earn cash back, score points when you shop, dine out, travel, or binge watch, or get a low intro APR. U.S. Bank credit cards were designed to fit your lifestyle. So make every day more rewarding and check out usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Welcome to the Rotowire NBA podcast. It is Wednesday, March 1st. Nick Whalen here with DJ Trainer. In just a second, we'll be joined by Wheat Hotchkiss. He's the editor at Pacers.com. Wheat was kind enough to give us about an hour of his time for a deep dive on the Indiana Pacers. We hit on the trade deadline drama surrounding Paul George, the transition from Frank Vogel to Nate McMillan, of course, the Lance Stevenson era, those awful Hickory jerseys, and a ton more. It was a really fun interview. Wheat knows this team about as well as anyone. So without further ado, let's get to it. All right, we are now pleased to be joined by Wheat Hotchkiss. He is the editor for Pacers.com. Wheat, thanks for taking the time to sit down with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. So you and I met at the media party down in New Orleans over All-Star Weekend, uh, mere hours after Glenn Robinson had just won the dunk contest. I guess my first question is, has the city of Indianapolis finally calmed down from all the excitement of that win for Glenn Robinson? Are the parades over? Has, has the ticker tape all been cleaned up? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think I think we're just now getting over it. But uh, obviously, uh, I know I know it wasn't what didn't live up to the hype of last year's dunk contest, but it was a big deal here. Uh, it's the first time a Pacers won the dunk contest, I think, since Fred Jones uh, in like 2002. Uh, the Fred Jones. 
Yeah, the Fred Jones. So, so it was a, a big deal for local fans. No, for sure. I cannot believe that we already got a Fred Jones mention less than a minute in. This is this is a good inkling. Um, so you're from Tennessee originally. Could you just talk us through how you ended up working with the Pacers? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I went to school um, at Davidson College, uh, and I actually I graduated in 2010. I was actually on the same freshman dorm as Steph Curry, uh, believe it or not. Um, and I was a major in classics, uh, and history. So I like studied a lot of like ancient Greek and Roman stuff that has nothing to do with basketball at all. Um, but then I got out of school and I, I started wanting to pursue something in sports. So I went to uh, grad school up in Indy, uh, through IU, uh, and got my master's in sports journalism, uh, started interning with the Pacers back in, uh, 2012, um internship turned into a part-time gig turned into a full-time gig and now five seasons later here i am so we're definitely going to get into the curry stuff in just a second but quick i I do want to ask i know that you covered the indiana fever of the WNBA. um what are the notable differences um besides covering or between covering the nba and WNBA that maybe your your average basketball fan wouldn't know off the bat well I, i mean i think the biggest difference um would be access. I mean, like from a media perspective, uh, covering the NBA is great, but like covering the WNBA, especially if you're trying to break into the business, um, you can't beat it because you get such good access with the players. Um, the thing that, the thing that I don't think people realize about the WNBA, um, is the players, like the physical toll that they put on their bodies, um, it's unreal. They have the draft. The college season runs until April, uh, and then they have the draft, and the WNBA starts in May. So players will go right to right out of college, right into the WNBA with no real off season. And then as soon as the season ends in like October, the vast majority of the players they sign a contract and they go play overseas uh, until the spring. So they're playing year round, uh, playing in multiple places. Uh, it's it's admirable what they do. Mm-hmm. So obviously you covered the Indiana Fever, um, you know, being located in Indianapolis. Is that something you still do? Like, what is what is the exact affiliation like between the Indiana Pacers and the Indiana Fever for those uh, who might not be aware? Uh, yeah, so the the Pacers and Fever uh, share the same owner, uh, same ownership. It's the same organization as well as the Mad Ants uh, in Fort Wayne, the D League team, uh, all under the same umbrella. Um, so for us. When I first started, I, I worked a lot on the Fever side. Um, I did a lot of stuff for their website in addition to the Pacers website. Uh, our department's kind of grown. Uh, so our digital department with the Pacers has uh, eight or nine full-timers now. We've got two that are dedicated to the Fever all the time. But the rest of us pitch in on that uh, and help out over the summer. Um, but we're primarily covering the Pacers. So I'm curious how you have to adjust your content. We working for or working as a journalist for a team rather than uh, you know just a regular publication. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. It's definitely different. Um, in a lot of ways, it, we do the same things that a traditional media outlet would do. Um, we're credentialed media. We sit on press row. We attend the same practices. We have mostly the same level of access, um, but. Uh, We'll publish the same types of stories even. We'll publish like the recaps, the features that you might see in like a local paper, like the beat reporter might write. Um, 
but at the same time, we also are trying to sell tickets. Um, so there's a big marketing component to what we do in our job, uh, what we put on our site. And obviously, there are certain types of stories that we're not going to want to put on our site. Um, there are certain types of stories that just because of NBA rules and regulations, we can't put on our site. Um, but there's a, there's a trade-off there in that we get access that other people don't. We, we work hand-in-hand with our PR department, with basketball any any breaking news from our organization traditionally we get it out on our our outlets first um versus as opposed to anything else and then we just have some access through the nba uh that other people don't especially when it comes to highlights um so that's a big part of our content production as well you know i I know at the media party in new orleans i was talking to some of the guys from orlandomagic.com and and i brought up the alfred payton situation which you know, as as we all know, his his future with that organization is somewhat clouded. And you know, I could tell you know the guys I was talking to wanted to address that with me, but they basically said they couldn't because you know, working for a team publication, it's it's somewhat frowned upon. You know, to be critical and you know, not not that they were worried that I would you know quote them or anything on it, but they were just kind of very very aware, I guess, and cognizant of of what they were saying and who they were saying it to. Has that ever been an issue with you where you've run into? something where you maybe want to criticize the team or there's something to be critical with the team, but you feel like you can't because of who you work for? I mean, I mean, yeah, there's definitely a balance there. Um, it's sometimes things will come up, um, uh, where there are certain stories that, you know, that like, if I was a beat reporter, maybe this is the, for, uh, an outlet not affiliated with the team. Maybe I would write this type of story, uh, but I can't do that because obviously I'm employed by the team. Um, but I mean, I mean, I think we try to be as fair and objective as possible because I don't think that people want to come. Even the diehard fan doesn't want to come to a site that's like spouting propaganda or like saying stuff that's like completely inaccurate and portraying the team as better than it really is. Um, so we, we try and be as fair as we can. But obviously there there is that line that you're very well aware of. And you can't cross that line given where your paycheck comes from. So just give us a quick run through on a typical game night for you. So, you know, starting with pregame, maybe even shoot around on a typical game day. What are your responsibilities? You know, um, just kind of you don't have to break down hour by hour, but uh, maybe how it's different from other beat writers uh, that, you know, people follow. Yeah, I mean, so we we cover a lot of the same stuff um, that traditional media outlets would. We're at we're at every home shoot around. Uh, we're at every practice, um, pregame will be at Nate McMillan's media availability, um, opposing coach media availability. Um, and then during the game, uh, like usually myself or, or Greg, who Nick, you met in new Orleans, um, our web, uh, coordinator, he'll, one of us will be writing like the traditional game story, but we've got, a, we've got a large crew with us. Uh, it's headed up by Celeste Ballou, who's kind of our, our leader and she runs all our social media channels. Um, so she's tweeting away uh, during the game, uh, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Snapchat, all that stuff. And then we've got we've got a healthy crew around. Uh, we cut a lot of highlights during the game, which is different than what other people do. We have access through the NBA and a, a vendor that we use that we can we can cut highlights for the web and for social. Um, then during the game, we also post a lot of photos uh, from Getty. We get photo galleries going. Uh, we get content in the app. If there's a notable like celebrity at the game, uh, like for instance, Jesse Eisenberg has been at a few of our games this year. We might do an interview with them. 
uh, posted to the website, maybe asked them to do do something for us on Snapchat. Um, and then after the game, we do the traditional stuff. We go into the locker room. We get video from both the Pacers locker room and the visiting team locker room. Uh, we go back. We cut up all the video. We get it up on the site on YouTube. Uh, so that's that's pretty much the general gist of it. So how did that change then for All-Star Weekend? You know, obviously there, all your coverage is basically geared toward Paul George and, and toward Glenn Robinson, right? Like, is when you're there, like, is that your only assignment is to focus on those two, or do you still try to maybe get some content from some of the other guys who are at All-Star Weekend? It's it's very Pacers-centric. Uh, obviously, well, this year, too, we had Miles Turner down there for the oh, Rising. sure, sure. So we, we had three guys down there, um, which was good in the past. I, last year, we went to Toronto. We just had Paul. Uh, and he was just doing the All-Star game. So it's nice to have a little variety, at least, to bounce from player to player. Uh, occasionally, we'll, we'll, if time allows, we'll try and talk to someone else. Like this year, Gordon Hayward, being from Indy and having gone to Butler, uh, there's some local ties there. And so I went to him during West availability and got, got a few questions in, a little video with him just for fans back home. Uh, but it's, it's heavily Pacer-centric. So like you said, uh, you stayed in the same dorm as two-time MVP Steph Curry. Uh, so two questions here. Did you interact, w- interact with him? And I guess you could totally lie if you wanted to. Nobody would ever know. And then realistically, did you actually foresee this kind of rise out of him back when you maybe knew him back in the day at Davidson? I, I did interact with him. It was a small dorm. Uh, I still see him whenever the Warriors come to town. Uh, He's nice enough to take a little time and chat with me, uh, still remembers me. Um, believe it or not, my friends don't believe that sometimes, but it's true. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, when he was there, like honestly, I remember the very like first thing we did like as a dorm, we had like this orientation thing, um, and uh, I knew that he was on the basketball team, didn't really know anything about him. Uh, I, I don't even know if I knew that his dad was Del Curry at that point. And we were supposed to do like this like weird relay race that involved like kicking soccer balls and like uh, doing a layup and stuff. And he went up and tried to dunk and just got like stuffed by the rim. And I thought to myself, I was like, man, this guy's on the basketball team. I don't know. <laughs> and then like fast forward like a couple months and he was starting as a freshman. I think uh, he was the second leading scoring freshman in the country that year behind Kevin Durant. Uh, and then uh, I think the moment that I knew that like he he had NBA talent uh, was the start of my sophomore year. We went to a game at uh, Appalachian State, which was like a big conference rival, and he'd been like the conference freshman of the year by that point. So everyone knew who he was and knew his name was Stephen Curry, and they introduced him in starting introductions as Stephen Curry, yes. and you could see it just like lit a fire under his eyes. We wanted. <laughs> We won the tip. He like scored a layup on the first possession, and he came down. and I swear, he hit like four threes in the first like four minutes of that game. He had like thirty points at halftime. I think he finished like at thirty nine or forty. Uh, and I was like, right then is when I knew that this guy was bound for something much bigger than Davidson. He he knew him all the way back when his name was Steven. That's crazy. You guys go way back. So you so you were at Davidson for the entire three years that Curry was there, right? Yes, yes, it was. So, like, how ridiculous did it get? You know, especially like you know, like you said, he was a big deal by the end of by the end of his freshman year. He was averaging almost twenty two a game. Got to be an even bigger deal sophomore year. But even you know us up here in Wisconsin, by his junior year, he was you know one of the top two or three stories in the entire country. Like, how wild was that? 
you know, being on a small campus, you know, in, you know, in that being Davidson and, and kind of getting to witness that firsthand? It was crazy. I mean, uh, I think when I was at Davidson, there were like 317 Division One pro schools. And I think Davidson was like the sixth smallest out of all of them. It's a tiny school, like 1,700 students. Um, so to get that attention, and then especially sophomore year, going on that Elite Eight run, they knocked off Gonzaga and then beating the two-seed Georgetown and then Wisconsin in the Sweet 16 and coming very close to the Final Four uh, in the Elite Eight against Kansas, losing at the buzzer. I mean, it, it, I've never, I'll never top that experience probably in my life. Just like the craziness of all the attention and like I was getting like I'm not on the basketball team but I was getting calls from like people I hadn't talked to like friends I hadn't talked to in years who were just like blown away by what was happening so it was it was awesome get to some Pacers topics as we know the Pacers did not trade Paul George at last week's deadline they're two and one now since the trade deadline just had a big win in Houston on Monday night how close did you get the sense that they were actually you know nearing a deal involving Paul George as Thursday's deadline approached well in the interest of like 100% transparency the 100% truthful answer is I don't know obviously I'm not privy to whatever conversations Larry Bird and the front office were having. Um, but like, I really don't get the feeling that they, that they seriously considered the idea of moving him. Uh, just knowing, frankly, like if you look at it, look at the age that Paul is at, if you look at where his contract is with still two years left on it, you look at where the team is in the, in the standings, it really would have been unprecedented to trade a player of his caliber in the middle of the season like that with all those circumstances lined out. Um, Larry Bird has been very adamant over the years that he wants to win. He wants to make the playoffs every year. The, the Pacers are not a franchise that like the idea of, of tanking, really. Um, and uh, he's he's also been adamant about wanting to keep Paul long-term. So he would have had to have been blown away by an offer to even consider, consider trading him. Doesn't seem right now that he's going to qualify for the designated player exception, but let's just say for some reason he does. Do you think that Larry Bird and the organization as a whole would feel comfortable giving him that designated player exemption? I mean, you could make the argument that the Kings obviously didn't that didn't feel that way for Cousins. So Nick and I are just kind of wondering, you know, maybe that might be a trend with with some of these other elite players, but not elite elite players. I mean, I I think they do. Um, when you look at Paul. Uh, you're right. He's probably not going to qualify, make all NBA this year unless something, something changes, but he could make it next year and then he would qualify. Um, when you look at him, he's only 26. Um, so when he hits free agency, he's probably going to just have turned 28. He'll be right in the prime of his career. And when you look at like the organization in Indiana, uh, they've never signed like an all NBA caliber player in free agency. Uh, in this kind of market, you really need to build uh, your team through the draft and through trades. And when you have a homegrown star, you do everything you can to keep them. That's what the designated player exception rule is for. It's designed to do as well. Um, so without without knowing exactly their thinking, I would I would guess that they would want to to do that if they could. 
I, I think Monte Ellis would maybe dispute that claim that the Pacers have never signed an All NBA caliber player, but we'll we'll let that slide. Well, I mean, one thing you know, the Kevin Durant injury last night. I saw a couple of people bring up on Twitter today is like, you know, it's tough to tell exactly like how many games you have to play in the minds of you know certain voters to to make an All NBA team. But if Kevin Durant doesn't play the rest of the regular season, it's conceivable to think he could be left off a lot of ballots and. You know the guy who might be next in line is Paul George. So you know there's a chance I think that that the KD injury maybe helps him out a little bit. But like you said, he still does have next season uh, to qualify for the DPE. The problem is the Pacers wouldn't know until you know next May or June, which you know kind of leaves yeah. them with very little time to make that decision uh, one way or the other next summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. And the the I think I think the designated player exception the. The premise of it is great. Uh, the weird thing is giving the media that power. It's 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 such a weird thing right. to me. And all NBA voting it in and of itself is weird because you have to pick two guards, two forwards, and two centers. But there's some wiggle room. Like you could list Anthony Davis as a center technically instead of a forward. You could list Jimmy Butler as a guard. You can get away with some some weird stuff there. Uh, it's it's just a funny process to me, right? I think it helps the true centers, you know, because as of right now, there's still this belief, or you know, I, I don't know who sets the parameters exactly for voting. I I don't know if that's done by the media or if the league says, you know, this player has to be voted as a center, whatever it may be. But we've seen guys, you know, Marcus All has been a first teamer in the past. DeAndre Jordan, Andre Drummond, guys who, if they were listed as forwards or if centers and forwards were grouped together probably wouldn't be on that list at all so I think it it certainly helps players at at, at certain positions and it it probably hurts players at others Um, so the Pacers like we said didn't really make any moves at the trade deadline you know after publicly proclaiming that they want to keep Paul George they had said they're going to try to bring him some help this season obviously they did not do that but one player they were linked to quite a bit uh, in the middle of last week was Jalil Okafor did you ever get the sense that Okafor might be on his way to Indiana and if so, would that have really moved the needle enough for this Pacers team to feel better about the product they're putting on the court for the last couple months of the season? You know, it's tough to get a gauge. Um, you don't know what offers they heard, uh, what moves they could have made. Obviously, they didn't make a move, so they didn't hear anything that they thought would make the team better. Um, I mean, I think looking at looking at the assets that the team has um, – uh, it's not surprising that they didn't make a move. Um, there's a few guys like like Paul George and Miles Turner who you obviously want to keep and build around. And then beyond that, uh, just with the, the various contracts they have, uh, it, they just couldn't make a move for whatever reason. Um, so I, I think they're going to write it out with this group. And, I mean, look, with this group, they're, they're still a playoff team. Um, they're in six right now. I think they'll probably end up around there. Um, and they can get in, and and if things fall right, I think they could win a series in the playoffs. Um, and I think that's that's the goal right now. So, yeah, that's interesting. I, that's what I was going to ask you about next because there's six right now, and a lot of these teams in the East, if they have a good week or a bad week, they can see their position change a couple spots. So, do you foresee them rising any higher than six? And what's the ceiling for this team this season? The way the roster is currently constructed, you know, do they get into the Boston, Washington, Toronto range, or is that unrealistic? I mean, I I I think like six probably feels about right for this team. You know, they've been up and down all year, like a, a little above 500 most of the year. 
Um, but there are some things. Atlanta's kind of slumped a little bit lately in that five spot. And then you look right above them. Toronto's obviously got the Lowry injury. And the Wizards' schedule is just brutal down the stretch. They've got 24 games left, and only eight of them are at home. And they've been pretty bad on the road for the most part this year. Um, but the Pacers are a, a ways back of them. Um, so I don't know if there's enough time, even if they got hot, for them to catch any or all of those teams. Six feels about right to me. Um, uh, I wouldn't be shocked if they moved up to maybe five or, or down to maybe seven, but right in that range. Do you think there's a team that they want to see in round one? Um, you know, this is, they took Toronto to seven games last season, and, and it seemed like you know at, at times had control of that series. And you wonder if you know the the tables are turned and that game seven's played in Indianapolis instead of Toronto. You know how differently we look at both of these teams right now. Um, you know, given the injury situation and, and given the history with some of the teams. Uh, above and below them in the east is there an opponent whether you think the players maybe want to face a certain team you know or you as a writer that you think is the best matchup for the Pacers in round one I mean I do think Toronto Toronto is a good matchup for them uh Paul George was just phenomenal in that series um not only scoring the basketball last year but also just defensively what he did to DeMar DeRozan he like took him out of several games of that series um, so I, th- I think that is a matchup where they, they could compete. Um, I also think Washington's not, not a terrible matchup. The Wizards took three out of four from them this year, but some of that is kind of like when those games fell on the schedule. Um, obviously, the Wizards have a high-power backcourt, but uh, the Pacers have had some good games against Washington over the years. There was a game, uh, not this season, but last, where Paul George and C.J. Miles just like rained threes in the Verizon Center. Um, they always seem to play play fairly well against Washington as well. Um, so I would I would say probably Toronto and then Washington would be what I think would be their favorite order of matchups. We let's talk about Jeff Teague. Uh, obviously, his first season in Indiana. I don't think he's missed a game yet this year. He's played all sixty. He's averaging a career high eight point one assists for Indiana so far. Uh, but do you have a read on his future in Indiana specifically? He's an unrestricted. Uh, free agent after this season do you think they're going to try to bring him back well you know when they brought him in uh over the summer when they they got him in that three-way trade um from atlanta uh he said that he would love to stay here long term he's obviously he's from indianapolis um so it's been a bit of a homecoming from him uh larry bird also expressed similar interest obviously they haven't done anything yet uh they're kind of waiting it out and they're going to revisit in the summer but on the court he's been a real good fit um, like you said, his assists are, are really high. Um, he's It's the first time in a long time that the Pacers have had like a true point guard. George Hill, uh, great player, great defender, but he, even he would tell you his natural position was shooting guard. Um, Jeff Teague, like, statistically, is putting together, arguably, you can make the argument, the best season ever by a Pacers point guard, like including like Mark Jackson, Jamal Tensley, those guys. Um He's having a great year. He's been a good fit offensively. There was a little bit of an adjustment period for maybe like a month, month and a half. Uh, but since then, he's been he's been phenomenal. He's had like 14 double-doubles. Um, he's been a, a very good offensive fit, and I think exactly what Larry Bird's been looking for at that position. 
So I think I think there's definitely some strong interest on both sides and him staying here long term. Well, yeah, I, you know, obviously he is from Indiana, but I wonder if maybe that's not a good thing. A lot of players return home. They're overwhelmed by family requests, friend requests for tickets, and just, you know, sometimes it's not a bad thing to professionally work in a different city than, than you're from. And you don't think that's been an issue for him so far that, at all, that more it's more so a happy homecoming than anything else? I mean, that that definitely can be a burden for sure. It's interesting. George Hill was also from Indy. Um, so we, we've gone through the same thing with – back-to-back point guards um and definitely there there is um there are some some distractions that can crop up i guess but jeff seems to be he's a really like uh quiet guy he keeps keeps to himself he's not like the type of guy who's going to go out on the town a lot um uh so i i think he's very good at like keeping it keeping it business related uh just focusing on basketball and not letting other things other distractions bother him all right, speaking of point guards from Indianapolis, has there been any resentment in the city that the Pacers weren't the team to take a chance on, you know, former Indiana star Yogi Ferrell? Oh man. Uh I mean, IU fans uh obviously are extremely passionate and extremely vocal. I mean, going back to the 87 draft when the Pacers took Reggie Miller, there was a section of the fan base of uh, IU fans who were upset that they didn't take Steve Alford. Mm-hmm. Obviously, obviously, we know how that turned out. Uh, Donnie Walsh made the right decision there. Um, but there's always, anytime there's a good IU player, especially one from Indy like Yogi Ferrell, um, there's always a section of the fan base that's kind of clamoring for him to come. Uh, the reality is we had Yogi Ferrell in for a draft workout. He's a great kid. Um, I mean, he wasn't, I don't think, the type of player that you would take in the draft. And then he, I think he and his agent did some really smart things for him. They, they put him in situations where he could prove himself. You know, the Pacers have a lot of veteran guards. Um, it would be tough to find playing time uh, here in Indy. He went to Brooklyn on a roster where he could kind of like prove himself in training camp, uh, then went to the D-League, played great, uh, got a 10-day with the Mavericks, and like really, really had a great stint there, obviously. That worked out real well for him. Um, so I think, I think he played his cards right. I think the Pacers have done what's been in their best interest and it's worked out for everybody. Yeah, we can, we can relate to that. The amount of people who asked me back in 2015, how the Bucks could possibly have passed on Sam Decker, uh, <laughs> was wild. It's like, do you really want to like, understand who these people are? You're like, did you really want the Bucks to, to, to grab Sam Decker who maybe even went a little high at, at 18 to Houston? I don't know. It, it is an interesting dynamic. Um, but going back to Glenn Robinson, who we talked about at the top, what was your your content team's expectations for Robinson heading into the dunk contest? One that I think everybody was ready to just hand to Aaron Gordon beforehand. I honestly, I felt kind of nervous for him because uh, Glenn is he's one of the nicest guys uh, we've ever had on the team while I've been here. Um, but he seems to be a guy that. Uh, nerves play a strong factor for him like when you watch him play in like a regular game if he hits his first three he's fine if he misses it though you worry that maybe he's going to get in his head a little bit um he can kind of take himself out of the game um so i thought that first dunk was going to be really key for him and and sure enough he went out there and he absolutely nailed his first dunk i think it was his best dunk he did all night um so once he did that uh you kind of like realized and then especially when you saw Aaron Gordon just mess up the way that he did you realized hey maybe he can actually win this thing uh we've seen him leap in practice the guy the guy has insane hops um so I wasn't surprised to see him win it 
Um, but definitely, I think that start was key for him. So I'm curious, uh, how has it been going from working with Frank Vogel to Nate McMillan on a daily basis? So I definitely want to get your perspective on that. And then I also want to hear about, you know, how has it been for Paul George? Because I think a lot of people are starting to maybe attribute the coaching change, uh, or, or rather Paul George's, you know, uh, fall in average numbers per game with the coaching change. Maybe you could also say that adding Jeff Teague um, was was part of that. So maybe just talk about personally what it's meant in the coaching change and then what it's meant for the Pacers' best player, Paul George. Well, personally for me, um, both Frank and Nate are great guys. Um, Frank Frank was awesome to be around. He was great with the media. Uh, and Nate is as well. Um, they're, they're a little different personalities, um, Frank, obviously, uh, having come up from like a very non-traditional route to become a head coach, um, I think he was very appreciative of everything that he had. Um, he he was quick-witted. He would he would joke. He would come back at the media with things. Uh, Nate is more of a traditional coach. Um, he, you know, he's an ex-player. Uh, he knows the game really well. He gives you like really long, detailed answers to every question. Um, which, which, I think you the media really appreciates. You know, he do, he doesn't like brush off any questions. No question is a bad question with him. Uh, so I would say that is definitely a plus from a media perspective. Uh, as it pertains to Paul, uh, I mean, look, Paul obviously was was close with Frank. I mean, Frank was kind of his guy. I think he took over uh, during Paul's rookie season um, from Jim O'Brien. Um, and so he, he'd come up with, come up with them. Uh, they obviously went to two Eastern conference finals together. Um, but at the end of the day, I think Paul understood, uh, when Larry Bird made the decision to move on and, and bring in Nate, um, that, it, that Larry thought it was time for a change. Uh, Nate's not someone that he's unfamiliar with. Uh, Nate had been an assistant here for three years. Um, he kept two assistants that Frank had Dan Burke, who's been here since, since the late nineties and Popeye Jones. Um, so the system hasn't changed drastically. I don't think, um, the personnel has been the biggest change this year. Uh, but I think Paul, even just today, I was reading an article in the Indy star and they were talking about some recent defensive adjustments they've make. They've made, uh, the Pacers historically don't like to switch a lot on screens. Um, but they'd run into some struggles lately. And so the past few games, they've tried more switching after Paul kind of went to Nate and talked to him about it. And Nate was very receptive to it. Uh, so I think, and Paul even said that that's something that maybe wouldn't have happened under Frank. Um, so I do think he and he and Nate have a good rapport. They have a good relationship. Um, yeah. What was it exactly that led to you know the Pacers moving on from Frank Vogel? I mean, two years after he led them to the number one seed, fifty six wins. Like, did you get the sense that there was maybe a certain point when things started to turn, or was it just you know the relationship had kind of run its course? You know, I, I just think it was time for a change. Um, I, I mean, that at least in Larry's mind, that's what Larry said. Uh, Larry Bird's a firm believer, uh, that after a certain amount of years, uh, players tend to tune out coaches. Uh, uh, other people may disagree with that, but that's Larry's experience from being a player and having been a coach. You know, he only coached the Pacers for three years. They went to the NBA finals after the third year and then he stepped down, um, because he thought they needed a new voice in the locker room. Uh, so I think in his, in his mind, he just thought that it was time to make a change. Um, 
I think I think people were maybe a little surprised that he said it, and then he brought Nate McMillan back, who had been there before. Um, but Nate definitely like has a different style to him than Frank, a different a, a different demeanor, a different voice. Um, so I mean, Larry Larry made the decision we made, and he's Larry Bird. So who am I to question it? So what was it like being around those teams in 2013 and 2014 that made the runs into the conference finals? Obviously, there's a buzz in the building. There's a buzz in the city, unlike, you know, a season maybe like this one where they're fighting for relevancy in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, I think the first year um, was really unexpected. It was it was a pleasant surprise to the whole city. Um, They'd gone to the second round and given the heat a good series the year before. But Danny Granger was the star of that team. Then he goes down like the beginning of that season. I think he only played a handful of games all of 2013, uh, or whatever, 2012, 2013 was the year. Um, And Paul really emerged. Uh, He won most improved player that year. I think that was when people started to realize that Paul George could be a star. Uh, Lance Stevenson went from a guy on the end of the bench who never played to a really good NBA starter. Uh, I think people forget how good Roy Hibbert was during those years. I mean, it's hard to believe now with with what he is now and how the game has changed. But, I mean, he changed the way the LeBron and the Heat played uh, with the way he defended and his verticality. Um, David West brought a nice toughness to that team. It was a it was a it was an intense uh, core of players and they got along really well. The fans loved them. Um, The second year, then obviously going out and getting that number one seed, finishing with the best record in the East. Um, that, that was exciting as well. You know, they, they put together a strong year. It just kind of like, I don't know what happened late in that year. Um, but there was more of a struggle in the playoffs. Um, and they, they still got to the Eastern conference finals, but the vibe changed from like being like, wow, I can't believe we're here to, I think they felt the pressure more being Mm -hmm. back this second year and, and like they were expected to do well. And I think that got to him a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I mean, you look back, I remember, I think it was game one of the East Finals that first year that they played Miami and, you know, they ended up losing in overtime. LeBron, you know, caught a pass late from the sideline, spun to the hoop and laid it up for the win. And I remember thinking like, that was their chance. You know, they could have taken game one in Miami. They actually ended up winning game two in that series. Um, But did you ever get the sense that they felt that they were better than Miami? You know, they got the number one seed, they won 56 games in 2014, but, you know, at least from an outsider perspective, it always seemed like, okay, Miami's just not really putting in a full effort here. They'll turn it on when they need to. Obviously, that's kind of what they ended up doing come playoff time. But did you think that the Pacers thought that they could beat the Miami Heat or thought that they were better than the Miami Heat? I, I really do think that they believed it. You know, they, they played them three years in a row. They took them six games, seven games, six games. Uh, they went toe-to-toe with them. Uh Roy Roy Hibbert was a real problem for them. They didn't have an answer for them. That's why they went out and got got Birdman. Um, in part, was to slow down Roy Hibbert a little bit. Um, and Paul, obviously, like he he relished those matchups with LeBron. Um, LeBron is LeBron, and Paul is not quite on that level. But he he rose to the occasion as much as he could. And I think in his heart of hearts, he believed that he he and that team had what it took. Uh, to beat the Heat. They just obviously came up a little short each time. 
So looking at those teams, that those were obviously more you know defensive minded uh, t- type of teams built around Roy Hibbert and David West and and Paul George. You know, you look at the defensive ratings, less than a hundred uh, for the first time in ten years. You know, in in twenty thirteen and twenty fourteen. Now, you know, the defensive ratings the last three years kind of steadily creeping up, you know, up to about 109 uh, this year. So a stark contrast, you know, from the team just three years ago. Is that something that's been designed, you know, to to pick up the pace and and play more quickly offensively and maybe sacrifice a little bit on the defensive end? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Larry's been very outspoken. He wants to play faster. He wants to score more points. And I think most of the personnel changes over the last few years, you see that. You see them bring in guys, uh, offensive guys like Monte Ellis, uh, C.J. Miles. Uh, you see them get smaller, obviously, Thaddeus Young playing at the four. You get a young center like Miles Turner. Uh, and so Jeff Teague uh, is a obviously a, a much better offensive point guard than George Hill, but George Hill was a, a longer guy, a little maybe a better defender. Um, so I think there's been some some conscious trade-off there uh, in the interest of like trying to keep up with the Joneses a little bit uh, offensively. And yeah, I think it's been mostly by design. Guys, let's finish up with our rapid fire round, which has been nothing but rapid over the course of this season, but that's all right. We've also been sticking to this questions uh, throughout the season. A little bit harder, maybe, to answer this one now, Wheat, uh, but most underrated team in the NBA, who do you think that is? Oh, man. Um, you know, the, the obvious answer would be the Spurs, uh, but I'll go with the Hawks. I mean, I think, I think Buttonholzer is a great coach. Um, and just the fact what they did when I think they were maybe trying to lose when they traded Corver and like it seemed like they might move Millsap. Um, but like they've hung around that top five of the East all season long. So I'll go with the Hawks. All right. Let's flip this one on its head. Most overrated team in the NBA. Oh, wow. Oh, man. Might get me in trouble there. Um, <laughs> unless, you, unless you say the Pacers, I think you're fine. Yeah. Uh,. That's a tough one. You know, I, I might go with the Thunder. Like, as good as Russ is, um, I mean, that team is still in seventh in the West. And realistically, I, I think a lot of people see them as a potential Western Conference Finals team, but I, I don't see it. Like, as good as he is, uh, he can't do it all by himself. So I'll go with the Thunder. Wheat Hotchkiss is calling out Russell Westbrook wow. on the Rotowire NBA podcast. We really wow. were hoping you would go with the Cavs there and then just slam <laughs> the entire organization, but that's all right. Uh, here's why this this section isn't rapid. Please give us your best Lance Stevenson story. Oh, wow. Wow. You can take a couple minutes to gather your thoughts if you need. Yeah, we'll just play some music <laughs> in between while you think. You know just watching Lance play uh I enjoyed it so much because like there's there's no one quite like him um I I just remember like the play that stands out for me is there was a game like a regular season game um his last year here where he led the league in triple doubles where I think it was like Paul was in the right corner and Lance was at the top of the key and Paul swung the ball to him and Lance for a reason I don't know at all, like leapt up in the air. Like it was completely unnecessary, but leapt up in the air as he caught the pass and whipped it behind his back, like to the opposite corner to CJ Watson for a three. 
and then like and then like did like this weird like pirouette like as Watson's three went in <laughs> and it was just like it like summed up like the player that he was like a lot of it was so unnecessary but like when it worked it was so so beautiful and so fun to watch uh in kind of the same vein did you get to know Andrew Bynum at all yeah during his you know brief but explosive stint with the Pacers in 2014 <laughs> A little bit, you know. He was he was here. He played two games. Um, he played well in those games, but his knees just gave out. Um, he was not the most talkative with the media. Uh, probably the least talkative of any player we've had in the five years I've been here. Um, I saw him in the locker room a couple times. Uh, he, I, I saw him playing video games in the locker room a couple times, but like after a game but that was it like i think that postseason run they gave him permission to like kind of go home and rehab so he wasn't like traveling with the team he really wasn't around that much that year but other than reggie miller who's the most beloved indiana pacer of all time i should say other than bynum and reggie miller right oh man um well, it's interesting. It's our 50th anniversary, so we're, we've been doing a lot of like content, like historical content over the course of the season. Um, the ABA days, um, they won three ABA titles, so any of those guys are pretty beloved. Uh, the late Mel Daniels, the late Roger Brown, uh, George McGinnis. But really, I would say truthfully, I would say Slick Leonard, who was the, the ABA coach um, and then is a, a longtime uh, radio broadcaster for the team. Uh, he's the guy who kind of coined the phrase boom baby, which is made famous by all – he says it after any three-pointer. So <laughs> after all 2,900 or whatever Reggie's threes, he dropped that line. And so fans fans love Slick. I would say Slick Leonard. There are not enough Slicks in the NBA these days. Like that, That's such an ABA name. You, you don't get that anymore. <laughs> Um, so you, like I said, you grew up in Tennessee, you went to school in North Carolina, and now you're in Indianapolis. What team did you root for growing up and who were some of your favorite players? You know, I was a bit of a, uh, uh, transient fan, I guess. I mean, like anyone growing up my age, like I, like I loved Michael Jordan, like who didn't? Uh, so I loved watching the Bulls. Um, I lived in Alabama for a while, uh, like not too far from Atlanta, so I like the I like the Hawks a lot, like the like the Mookie Blaylock, Steve Smith era Hawks. Um, I really liked the the Kings with like C Webb and Peja Stojakovic. Yeah. Um, I I did I honestly like I'm I can say now like I like the Pacers growing up. Like I remember those Pacers Knicks games, mm-hmm. and I always I always chose the Pacers just because I really didn't like the Knicks. Um, I was a big Reggie Miller fan uh, as like a fellow skinny guy. Like I kind of like idolized Reggie, <laughs> like being able to do what he could do. So, I mean, the, I would say those were the teams. And then, and then when Memphis got the Grizzlies in like I don't know, like the early two thousands, then I, I sort of like adopted the Grizzlies as my team at that point. Yeah, I remember those Knicks Pacers games. It always seemed to be on like a Sunday afternoon on NBC. It was like the Knicks and Pacers are playing for the eighth week in a row, and it's Reggie Miller against Latrell Sprewell and Larry Johnson. Uh, good memories there. I, I actually will admit, I didn't know all that much about Reggie Miller uh, until I watched that ESPN 30 for 30. I think it was one of the first ones that came out you know, back in 2009 or 2010 when they initially launched 30 for 30. And like, I, I didn't realize, you know, being, being a child who, who grew up mostly, you know, in the mid two thousands, you know, all the history of, of Reggie Miller and the New York Knicks and Spike Lee, um, 
I mean, it is fair to say that Reggie Miller is far and away the most beloved pacer of all time, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Even to this day, like any time we put up any Reggie-related content on our site, the numbers are through the roof, like you wouldn't believe. Uh, like the 20th anniversary of 8 points in 9 seconds, uh, just for like the, the 90s decade game that we did recently where we honored a bunch of past players, like all of our Reggie content like did really, really well. Uh, fans, fans still worship Reggie here in Indy. Over the course of your career, Wheat, who's been your favorite player to talk with? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, there's a lot. Like, for for a star, I'll say Paul is great. Like, Paul, uh, he'll always talk. Um, he talks at every practice, every shoot around, um, every post game. Um, he's he's generally like very thoughtful. Um, so for a star, he's great. Um, like my favorite interviews period, I would probably say, uh, CJ miles on the current team is just like great. The guy wants to be a broadcaster and you can just like tell that like he's, he's made to do that. He's like very smart, uh, insightful, like thoughtful. Uh, Jan Mahimi was great. I loved Jan. Um, so those would probably be two. Anyone but Lavoy Allen. I've got a little bit of a personal feud with that wow. guy. Okay, you're here gonna we have go. to yeah, you're here gonna have go. to expound on that. Uh, well, basically, Lavoy is just like I, I love Lavoy, but Lavoy is like the most sarcastic person I've ever met. Um, he found out that my name was Wheat somehow uh, uh, a while back, and then he like mocked the name, and then I was like, "But your name is Lavoy. Like that's just as weird." Um, and so we kind of we kind of have like this like joking like relationship. Sometimes we're best friends, and sometimes we're feuding. Uh, he had a double double earlier this season where like the media assembled around him, and I asked the first question, and he jokingly gave a no comment. Uh, said I'm not going to answer questions <laughs> from that guy. Uh, but it's all in fun. We just like to tease each other. Frenemies, I like it. Can we can we get a quick explanation on like what is the is there any history on the name Wheat? Yeah, it's just my mom's maiden name. Okay. Uh, it's kind of a Southern thing, I guess. It's my middle name. My, my first name is Thomas, uh, but my dad's Tom, so I've always gone by it just to avoid like that Tom-Tom confusion. Hey, gotcha. as a DJ here who does not go by his real first name, I, I can sympathize, Wheat. All right. Best player in Pacers history who played less than 300 minutes with the team. Ty Lawson, Ben Hansborough, or Samaki Walker. Should note, Andrew Bynum, the obvious answer is excluded here. Oh, man. Uh, I mean, I got to go Ty Lawson. Ty Lawson was a valuable player. Uh, the Ben Hansborough era was a lot of fun, though. I was just talking today. Tyler Hansborough, by the way, uh, just signed with the, the Mad Ants, the Pacers D-League team, which oh, is no. kind of oh, no. funny coming full circle. But he and Ben were on the team for that one year together, and we were just joking today about the time Tristan Thompson, like in a game, like elbowed Ben in the face, and Tyler just ran in and like, and I think he literally screamed, "Don't do that to my brother!" And like, <laughs> I thought he was going to kill Tristan Thompson. That's hilarious. Wait, so like the psycho T nickname, he actually lives up to that. Oh yeah, yeah. Like I, you heard stories like guys hated to practice with him because he was just like he he went so hard all the time and like he would flail his elbows and like you never knew like when you might catch a black eye by accident. <laughs> he, I mean, he was kind of Draymond like in that way, just like. 10 times worse uh, as a player than Draymond. Uh, when you're not watching the Indiana Pacers, who's your favorite team to watch on League Pass? 
I mean, the Warriors are the obvious answer. Uh I, the Grizzlies, I have a special fondness for, like, the grit grind Grizzlies. I got a lot of family still in Memphis. Um, so, like, Tony Allen, like, is, like, my, like, favorite personality in the league. And then, like, Mark Gasol, Zach Randolph, Mike Conley. Like, I, I've watched a lot of their games over the years. So that would probably be my number two beyond the Warriors. That's a good answer. I feel like if, if you had to ask people around the country, like, which team do you respect the most or hate the least, like, Memphis would have to be near the top of that list. Yeah, for sure. So best Pacers jersey of jersey style, excuse me, of all time. If you say the Hickory jerseys, we're definitely going to need a lengthy explanation on why that's actually true. Um, for me, I would say I like the '90s, the FloJo jerseys. Yes, that's uh, that's the correct answer. Yeah, yeah, the, that's that's always an all-timer. We brought those back a couple years ago, and fans still love those. Uh, the pinstripes, the pinstripes are cool. And I, I actually kind of like the eighties ones. I think they, the unofficial nickname is like the ESPN style where they kind of had a line through like the Pacers and they were blue with like a yellow stripe. I, some people don't like those, but I kind of like those as well. But the Flojos would be my choice. Yeah. The Hawks have something similar, right? I think they actually retroed those just within the last week. Like the Hawks have like a lime green and blue style, you know, the kind of a horizontal line that snakes its way through the Jersey. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, that was those are nice. so big in the 80s for some reason. I don't know why. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm i a big Jersey connoisseur myself. and it, It's sad to see how much all the designs are just kind of standardized and, and dumbed down. You don't get that kind of creativity. But I do think the Pacers' current jerseys are probably top 10 in the league. Yeah, they're they're solid. They're solid. And uh, obviously, we'll see we'll see what happens like down the road with mm-hmm. the new Nike jerseys, with them taking over for all the teams. I'm curious to see what designs they have for uh some new teams down the road do the players actually like the hickory jerseys i i think they do um yeah i i mean it's it's something different i think i think players like variety um i think the fans like it i mean i the thing that we do with hickory um is that we kind of like use it as like a way to honor like six times a year honor like local high school heroes because high school basketball is so big in indiana um so we've honored like like oscar robertson's team uh the Milan team which was the inspiration for the movie hoosiers uh lots of stories like that so it's it's like it's like a great community outreach thing for Mm -hmm. us from our, our perspective all right so what's the best jersey that you own the best jersey could be pacers or otherwise you know i i'm probably partial um to my lance jersey i got it i got it like after he signed in charlotte from the gift shop on like discount um <laughs> but lance will always be like one of my favorite players uh to cover and so like the lance jersey is probably my favorite okay that's a really good answer yeah one more question here if you can't tell that we're, we're way into jerseys too far into jerseys but what's the wildest jersey you've ever seen at a pacers game oh man uh, you know, I, I, the fans are pretty good. The one thing that I, I've seen that's kind of funny is, uh, Danny Granger was number 33 and now Miles Turner is. So I've seen people who have like literally like, instead of just buying a Miles Turner jersey, they've taken the Granger jersey and just like manipulated the letters on the back. So it says Turner instead of Granger, which you can actually do because that's the creative. Letter, letters are, are similar so yeah like that's like the most creative thing i've seen that's pretty impressive yeah i, I as i'm sure you noticed all-star weekend was a haven 
for Jersey. I saw a Chris Webber Pistons, and I don't know. Did you go to the D League All Star game? Yeah, yeah, I did go to the D League All Star. What, what an exciting contest that was! But there was a John Coon Packers jersey in the crowd at the Superdome. That's that's very very random. It's yeah, it's yeah. kind of a kind of alarming thing to see out of the corner of your eye. <laughs> Um, All right. Well, this was great. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Make sure to follow Wheat on Twitter at Wheat underscore Hotchkiss. That's H-O-C or H-O-T-C-H-K-I-S-S. Of course, be sure to read his content on Pacers.com. Wheat, enjoy the rest of the season, man. We'll have to do this again sometime. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. that by the foot there's no better ride than an old station wagon room for six people facing forward two people facing backward and a whole lot of luggage lumber and bicycles haphazardly strapped to the roof if you can parallel park that beast you can park anything and with some quality parts and a little napa know-how you can keep your land ship running longer stronger it's not obsolete it's a rare treasure that's napa know-how napa know-how it's happening daily We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com